the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Justin. Hello, everyone. Welcome. How you doing? I'm doing just well. How about you? Not too bad. I'm excited to be talking some more Eddie Murphy. We really do love him here at the podcast. I think Eddie Murphy gets a lot of flack for the stuff he did post-90s. And don't get me wrong. I mean, those movies, not all of them are hits, but there's some entertaining movies in there. I think some of them people need to give a chance. Meet Dave. I think it's a pretty funny, solid movie. Eddie Murphy is just a very talented guy all around, so I think he could take something that isn't even that great and make it wonderful just based upon who he is and what he can do with anything. Well, the Eddie Murphy movie we're going to be getting into is Beverly Hills Cop, the original, I think the best in the series as well. There could be an argument easily made, I think, for Beverly Hills Cop Part 2. But this one, I think, has Eddie Murphy at the at the peak of his powers. You know, this is insane string of hits that he had in the 80s, just like one after another, where, you know, he really is the marquee name, the movie star. Going to be getting into a lot about the behind the scenes of this movie, because this was almost a completely different film. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of a wild ride here. <laughs> it really uh, is. That this, that this script and this movie took... And also, too, um, just kind of talking about how huge of a hit this movie was. I mean, it's kind of nuts when you think about it. I mean, this came out in 1984, was the highest grossing film of 1984. And then also, I think that it's like adjusted to inflation is still like in the top five all-time grossing comedies. And also, too, I think a movie that paved the way for the action comedy. We've definitely covered a lot of genre-bending movies on this podcast, and this one is no different. Before the 80s, you know, there were certainly some movies that had humorous moments, but you didn't have a movie that had, like, this big comedic star at the forefront, but then also the action was also, like, kind of heavy-hitting and even more so, I think, in Beverly Hills Cop 2, I mean, the, the action sequences are not as elegant in the first Beverly Hills Cop, but still this sort of big, high-budget action comedy that has like somewhat of a phenomenal title. Beverly Hills Cop gives you what you need. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get into more of the, the logistics of the movie, but uh, we'll definitely be talking about Eddie Murphy. We'll definitely be talking about Martin Brest, the director of Beverly Hills Cop, because he had, he's had a really interesting career and also somewhat tragic career. And we'll get into that as well a little bit later on. We'll talk about what kind of comedy this is, what set it apart at the time and how it kind of influenced movies to come after it. One thing that stands out about this movie to me is that for once, the plot, while very much an active story, you can follow it. It is not actually, to me, what I find most engaging about it. And that is the characters. And of course, we'll get into the characters, their dynamics, the cast, the the casting process plays a whole big thing into the creation of the film. Oh my gosh, the music, Justin, the soundtrack. Have you been cranking it like I have? You better believe that I've been like cranking the soundtrack. And I've also too, at my job, I've taken on a little bit of a different position. So I've been uh, working in a warehouse, a really yeah. hot warehouse. Um <laughs> 
packing a lot of boxes and moving stuff around and there's a bluetooth speaker in there and just kind of like been cranking the beverly hills cop soundtrack and it's a lot of upbeat music, you know, it can really, yeah. really good music to work to. So we're I've, like, uh, Justin, I didn't know you were such a Patti LaBelle fan. Yeah, but I love the Pointer Sisters and, you know, my feelings about the Eagles. Can't give all the credit to Glenn Fry for the heat is on because, you know, he didn't write it, but still he did do a noble job. Yeah, it's a good song and has a St. Louis connection that we'll talk about later. And we already touched on it a little bit, but we'll talk about the release reception and of course the franchise and probably have our own thoughts on uh, what we think about two and three and uh after that we'll get into our picks of the week you know i i was totally gonna go eddie murphy for this episode and oh my gosh you didn't i didn't yeah the more i started getting into the behind the scenes of beverly hills cop i, I sidestepped the eddie murphy route and okay. decided to go with sylvester stallone's cobra and we'll talk a little bit later about how that movie is tied to Beverly Hills Cop in a very specific way. Don't give it away just yet. <laughs> and what was your pick? My pick this week was Ruthless People, which co-stars Judge Reinhold, who is a main player in Beverly Hills Cop. That's a pretty funny one. I've, I've watched that one uh, not not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Actually, for one of your picks of the week, that's uh, probably the most recent of one of your picks that I've seen. It is. And you really lit the fire under me to want to rewatch this. And I'm certainly very glad I did. And naturally, we'll round things out with a Murray moment. But before we go into our first clip, Lindsay, can you set up uh, the story of Beverly Hills Cop? Um, What's this movie about? You know, your interpretation of of what happens in this movie. Hold on. Let me access my thoughts. So Axel Foley is a razor sharp Detroit cop known for being a little more unorthodox than his by-the-book counterparts. So when he happens into a drug-smuggling ring while trying to solve his friend's murder, Foley's not one to let his curiosity rest. Forbidden by his boss from looking further into the case, Foley takes a vacation to California, Beverly Hills to be specific, the city which also holds clues to solving his friend's murder, including having a longtime pal on the inside who may be able to help. With all of Foley's poking around and having the local police question his every move, there's no way the bad guys are going to get away with anything. That sums it up really nicely. We'll talk about this uh, in a little bit here, but like you said, this story is uh, short on uh, plot, but long on characters and chemistry. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into our first clip from Beverly Hills Cop. We'll be back. We'll talk about it. I'm fine. My name is Sash, and how can I help you? Um, Yeah, I'm looking for Miss Jenny Summers. It's very busy today. Maybe you give me your name? My name is Axel Foley. And uh, what is pertaining? I didn't understand what you said. Pertaining, what it's meaning, regarding. Oh, what's it regarding? I'm an old acquaintance of hers. Donay? One moment. Donay Brennan tell me Summers that uh, Mr. Ahmed Foley is here to no, see. Axel Foley. Axel. Ahmed, Ahwell. Axel. Polly's here to see her. He's an old acquaintance. Donnie, this is covered this up. It's I'm like sorry. the breast of a dog to scrub for the customer. It's not sexy, it's animal. No, it's not sexy at all. May I offer you something to drink? A wine, a cocktail, a, a espresso? No, I'm fine, thank you. I'll make it myself right back there with a little lemon twist. It's good. You should try it. No, I'm, I'm fine. I see you look at this piece. Yeah, I was wondering how much something like this went for. $130,000. Get the fuck out of here. 
fuck out of here. No, I cannot. It's serious because it's very important. Peace. Have you ever sold one of these? Sell it yesterday to a collector. Get the fuck no, out of here. Somebody else, I said it myself. <laughs> Axel Foley, what on earth are you doing here? How you doing? I'm fine. Hold a second. I'll be right down. Great. Excuse me, Serge. As a lot of movies do in the Hollywood system, there's a long gestation period. You know, a lot of movies that we love, the scripts have been bounced around, the ideas have been bounced around for years. A lot of times movies never get made. Sometimes the development of a movie takes five, six years. And Beverly Hills Cop is one of those movies. Dates back to the late 70s of when this movie first started coming to fruition. A much, much different movie, This uh, the way this one started, with a much less uh, impressive and catchy title as well. That's true. Well, originally, the story origin comes from two Paramount execs who were very involved with the formation of everything to do with Beverly Hills Cop. Michael Eisner said that the story was his idea originally, and it came from when his wife thought that they had a burglar. And then Paramount associate executive Don Simpson said that it actually came from him, from a time when he was pulled over in his Camaro in Beverly Hills, and he started thinking, you know, how would I be treated in another city, like looking the way that I do in this Camaro? Or like, how would a cop from another city treat me looking the way that I do? Whose ever story origin it originally came from. So there was this seed kind of brewing in the late 70s of this, this idea of something to do with an outsider cop, something to do with Beverly Hills, but they weren't really sure. So these executives, associate executives at Paramount employed writer Danilo Bach to come up with the script. And if you can believe it, comedy for this film was never in mind. They wanted like this straightforward kind of action film, something to do with a cop in Beverly Hills that just raises a lot of trouble, you know, some type of outsider. So Bach is working on this for a couple years, has something a little fleshed out, but it isn't until like three years later. He said when he's sitting on the beach in Santa Monica and he just had this boom, this moment where he just has this, this perfect idea, this straightforward action movie. And he goes to pitch it to executives at Paramount, comes out with a little bit of the story, doesn't even get to the ending. And Michael Eisner just says, I love it. Let's green light it. I don't even want an outline. Just go straight to the screenplay. So as Bach starts working on the story, there's a little bit of, you know, transitional time that screenplays go through. So there's a version that's sitting out on Eisner's desk and Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, another associate executive at Paramount, happen to see the script sitting out and they're like, hey, wait, this is ours. And at the time it was called Beverly Drive, way less catchy than Beverly Hills Cop. They see it and they make a hard pitch and say, hey, we want to flesh this idea out without any fight. It's like, OK, yeah, let's go ahead and do this. You guys are the producers that are going to make this happen. So four long years later, Beverly Drive is on its way to actually becoming a film. Now, Danilo Bach, who came up with this idea and made this the straightforward story, knew that since so much time had passed, just figured that there was going to be some type of rewrite. And I, I can't help but think that most writers understand that that's going to happen, and that's got to smart a little bit, I would imagine. But the way that he talks about it, he just assumed that it was going to, and it did, and completely just 
not not threw his entire idea out, but it certainly made things completely different. So writer Daniel Petrie Jr. comes in and Bach gets booted from the project. And it's Petrie who comes up with the idea to make this movie take the more comedic route that we know it to be today. We all think of Eddie Murphy for this film, but can you believe Clint Eastwood, Al Pacino, and number one contender, and was on board for quite some time, Mickey Rourke. He had a contract and everything. And man, what a different movie with Mickey Rourke, like 1980s Mickey Rourke. Yeah, hot. And very like soft, talking yeah. voice. Um, yeah. And then he ended up doing like, an, like a mid-80s cop movie, I think, like a Year of the Dragon, much more serious tone film. And it was because... He, he had to move on because the, the production for this was just wasn't moving fast enough. And like he was in this holding contract and it was something like $450,000. He was in this. And by the time the contract expired, he was like, look, guys, I got to like move on. So he bailed. I don't think there was any bad feelings or anything, but it just it wasn't moving along. So. When Mickey Rourke bailed, of course, you're like, well, we've got this script, but we're still kind of working out the details. We really need that lead. And it just happened to be that Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer were on the Paramount lot and ran into Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy's totally hot at this point. He's on SNL. He's already done 48 hours. It's not like, you know, he's fresh faced guy. Everybody knows who Eddie Murphy is. But I mean, 48 hours certainly blew him up. SNL, he was massive, but Beverly Hills Cop to me is where he really elevated in, in status as far as being able to carry a picture. So he runs into Bruckheimer and Simpson and says, what are you guys working on? They tell him about this because it happens to coincide with the time when Rourke is out of the picture. And Eddie Murphy's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I think I'm down with that. So those two guys go back to Paramount and say, look, we got somebody. It's perfect, perfect timing. We got Eddie Murphy on board. And in the strangest turn of events, another actor had already been asked in the meantime, someone who people really didn't think was going to accept the role based on the comedic aspect of the film. But strangely, he did take it. And not actually so strangely, this actor, I think he's really funny. I think he has a great funny bone. But man, get ready to have your minds blown. Sylvester Stallone was the lead in Beverly Hills Cop. And Sylvester Stallone had been on, on a hot streak. I mean, had already done Rocky, had had a huge hit with First Blood. He was looking to do a big action vehicle. Sylvester Stallone started as a, as a writer you know, writer-actor. He had worked on the scripts to multiple movies. He had already directed several movies. So he was used to working behind the camera and took a lot of liberties. You know, he attached himself to the project and started changing the script and really kind of eliminating all the comedic elements, really souping it up to make it like this gargantuan action film. And the role of Rose Wood that eventually was played by Judge Reinhold. That character's like killed off in like the second act. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. uh, something like the final scene of the movie Stallone had written in, like he's driving a Lamborghini and like playing chicken <laughs> with one of the bad guys. <laughs> and the more he added to the script, the more the studio was just thinking like, this is just going to cost so much money to pull off all these like action sequences. 
and the Axel Foley character name was changed multiple times in, in different script revisions. Um, but Stallone changed the name of Axel Foley to Axel Cobretti, which uh, you know Stallone uh, reused for um, his movie Cobra. Well, because he wanted to be called the Motor City Cobra, makes sense to me. Yeah, you got you got to rework it for Stallone. You know, he speaks a certain way, he carries himself a different way, and it, it makes sense. And I and I think him taking on a rewrite was pretty admirable. You know, to be like, yeah, you guys want me? Okay, I'm just going to, if you're on board with it. And it seems like he was supported. People thought, okay, Stallone's going to be involved. Totally fine with a rewrite. Let's just see. But again, this movie had been rewritten countless times, and this was yet again another rewrite. The more the studio was getting concerned about the the budget limitations, um, they decided that it just... It wasn't going to work. You know, it wasn't going to work with Stallone. It was just going to cost too much money. And so Stallone ended up packing it up and taking his script to another studio. He wanted to turn the movie into um, Cobra, you know, change the name of the title, um, took all of his uh, notes and everything he had changed and then ended up reworking, taking from a novel called Fair Game and turning turning it into his movie Cobra that came out two years after Beverly Hills Cop, which, you know, I'll get into in my pick of the week. And it seemed like a pretty crafty compromise that happened because by this point, director Martin Brest had come aboard for the film. And this was another thing that Simpson and Bruckheimer really had to lobby for. They had to convince Paramount that this was the guy to direct the film. They were fans of his student films and his 79 film Going in Style, which was a George Burns movie. So once they had convinced Martin Brest to come on board, this was kind of happening at the same time as the Stallone rewrites. And Martin Brest had been shooting down rewrites after rewrites. And I love the uh, the little nugget of how he got involved that he had been asked so many times that it literally came down to him flipping a coin and he was like I just like I can't make up my mind right now I keep telling you no but you keep asking me and he flipped a coin and he has that coin framed still that that's what made him decide to actually do Beverly Hills Cop after he comes on board the Stallone stuff is still happening and like you said you know they're like this is too big this is too much money this isn't really the way that we want to go, but nobody really wants to tell Sly, yo, bro, we don't want to do this. This is not the movie that we want to do. It's too much money. I don't want to tell him. Do you want to tell him? And that's how Cobra happened. I mean, it's kind of brilliant in a way that Cobra ends up being made and you're going to talk about it. I love the movie. I'm glad that it happened in this way. But as far as Beverly Hills Cop goes, cool. We've got a script that has been obliterated. We have a director. We don't have a star. But you know who they had in their back pocket? There was Eddie Murphy. He was still there. It's interesting to think about, like, you know, we, we talk about uh, tonally how films are, you know, certain tones for uh, comedy and certain tones for horror, and especially when there's genre blending and it's it's kind of wild to think of this movie as like, you know, if you've seen Cobra, how like over the top action it is. And then, yeah. you know, you look at Beverly Hills Cop, which is definitely not as action heavy as like a Stallone movie, 
but the action seems a, a little bit more realistic, more realistic than, say, like a, the Die Hard movies. You know, Eddie Murphy doesn't... Uh, I mean, granted, he does get thrown through a window in the beginning, but he doesn't fall like, you know, three stories through yeah. something, and you know, <laughs> doesn't uh, get into like a flip, you know, a car flips over like 15 times and he crawls out and is like shooting people. They do ramp yeah. that up <laughs> late in, later in the in the series, you know, as the sequels yes. progress. Yeah. Um, it becomes more, I think, of how action movies became and Beverly Hills Cop the original had a, had a unique tone. I mean, you have this, uh, which Martin Brest, I think, you know, we'll talk about him in the next, you know, after the clip, this kind of became his thing, you know, like uh, he did midnight run, which I've done as a pick of the week action comedy formula where, you know, you have, it's like a buddy cop movie. Several years later, we have lethal weapon that kind of went further on with this sort of like buddy cop idea. Um, but Beverly Hills cop really was the, one of the early incarnations of that. It especially works really well when you have someone like Eddie Murphy and you, you know, he's genuinely funny. He can improv really, really well. And then you put him with a bunch, a group of actors who are also like, you know, higher caliber actors, you know, Judge Reinhold, John Aston, uh, Ronnie Cox, Bronson Pinchot. It's a winning situation. A later on in Eddie Murphy's career, you know, he definitely has like those moments that seem like he's doing a lot of improv, but this movie especially would literally come up with ideas for scenes, like moments, moments before they film them, you know, like, Hey, th there's a dead spot in this scene. Like, you know, Martin Brest is like, yeah, you're, you're dropping your car off to the valet. We need something here. It's just like, it's a dead spot in the movie. And Murphy's like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, and then comes up with a whole bit of like, Hey, take, take care of my car. You know, last time, all this shit happened to it. Last time I dropped it off, you know, <laughs> last time I parked it and it just, it catches you, you off guard. It catches that you can even see the the valet, the guy who's playing the valet, it kind of catches him off guard because you don't know what he's going to say, but it's funny and it's very quick. It's very witty. He has all these um, scene after scene where he has these little quips that constantly had me laughing. You know, this is stuff that wasn't in the script. They really had him pad it. We've talked about this with Bill Murray before, you know, his prone to improvisation. Sometimes director or screenwriters kind of leave things a little bit more empty because they know that he's going to change them and probably make them more funny, change them to suit his style. And mm -hmm. this is definitely a movie where Eddie Murphy did that. And then also, too, Eddie Murphy's an actor who times where he didn't really know what Martin Brest was com coming from. Like he said, oh, I, I want you to do this. Like we want to play on race a little bit in this movie. And Eddie Murphy heard him out and then was like, okay, okay, I got it. And then just knocked it right out. And he's just like one of those actors who's like very funny, very quick, very fast, very charismatic. You're just rooting for him all the way. He became a more serious toned actor like later on, a more dramatic actor later on in his career. And there's certainly some mildly dramatic scenes in this movie that maybe don't play as well as I think Eddie Murphy would have played them, you know, when he was older and had more experience doing dramatic roles. But I still think that it doesn't affect the movie in any way. I thoroughly enjoy this movie from start to finish, even though the plot is like very thin. There's not a whole lot happening, but they cast the bad guys convincingly. They just have faces and voices that you just want to hate. <laughs> you know, you just you want you want Eddie Murphy to like, you know, show these guys up. And it's a balancing act of like putting humor in there, putting action in there, but then also making these characters likable and having them re relate to each other. And then also to early on in the script, the fish out of water, you know, Detroit cop 
who is, you know, rough around the edges, doesn't always play the by the book, gets to Beverly Hills and realizes, you know, these guys always play by the book. They always play it safe. Everything is like protocol all the way down the middle. And he just seems like a wild card to them. And then you see that sort of buddy in the clashing of personalities, which, you know, we constantly are, you know, one scene after another where Murphy's doing his thing and like really, really like, you know, eating up the scenery. Well, you can say there's not, you know, that much to the story. Honestly, the script was being finished while they were filming. So pretty understandable why that was happening. Honestly, you know, there are things that happen as far as keeping the reality of the film. Like the the bad guys always had to be bad. There can't be any comedic aspect of them. The police, they have to be the straight guys. They they can't be comedic either. It's Eddie Murphy that has to play off of these straight characters. For me, and I think you too, Justin, the friendship aspect of the film is the, is the through line throughout the entire film. And that might sound nutty for when you, when you like think about this movie, you're like friendship aspect. What are you talking about? Even though Axel Foley is, you know, initially clashing heads with Taggart and Rosewood, the, the two cops that he kind of buddies up with later. Initially that does happen, but the evolution of the story, we see the breakdown of them not believing him and being like, Oh, who's this, who's this wild card type of thing. But then they see that he's got something to his story. He's not lying. He's not there just to be create mischief. And it's this subtlety that happens throughout the story with that friendship aspect and with the whole impetus for the story. That being that Eddie Murphy's friend is murdered and we're automatically thrown into this friendship that we have to believe immediately. We have to believe that Axel cares about his friend, that they go way back, that they've been through some stuff together when they were kids. And this guy's murdered. And the entire reason for this movie is Axel figuring out who killed his friend. And then that blows up into this bigger, whole other drug smuggling, bond smuggling in from other countries story. And then the other friendship aspect with his other longtime friend, Jenny. That by itself, too, we have to buy that storyline. I think Lethal Weapon is a great comparison, and in a lot of ways, the movie was, what, three years later? So it's a good chunk of time later. Friendship is really at the heart of that film, too. But in Beverly Hills Cop, we have this feeling of old friendship, and something like this bond that can't be broken. And I think that that's that same bond that can happen between police officers, too. It's just a deeper level of friendship. And I really do think for the time, like 1984, we weren't really seeing these action movies that had a heart, that had an emotional core to them. And I'm not putting down anything that didn't have that. I'm just saying it's just really something that's unexpected for a cop movie that's dealing with drug smuggling and murders, that we have this entire friendship through line. I think it's just brilliant. And I don't think it gets talked about enough when it comes to Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, I totally agree with you. We usually watch these movies about three times over the course of our research period before we do the episodes. And I hadn't done my first watch yet. You had texted me 
man, this movie's totally about friendship. Right away, like I, you got that in my head. And as soon as it, the movie started up, watching it with that mindset, it's like, man, you're so right. I mean, just beat for beat, you know, it's like the friendships, the, the past friendships that Foley has and the future friendship that he makes in, you know, even with Beverly Hills Cop 2, the whole exciting part about the the beginning of that movie is like him, his reuniting with his friends, you know, and we, because mm-hmm. yeah. you really, this yeah. is a movie where was the sequel warranted? Not really, but the exciting part was, is, you know, I want to see him hang out with Taggart and Rosewood more. You know, I want them <laughs> totally. to go on another adventure. Totally. And like you said, this whole movie kicks off because one of his best friends is killed. And immediately there's a scene where his boss is saying, you know, you need to stay away from this case. And he's like, well, I'm going to take a vacation. We see the cut to him driving into Beverly Hills with his own car. From Detroit to Beverly Hills, that's a long drive. <laughs> I mean, he drove for his, you know, his friends killed. And he's like, I'm going to investigate the case. He doesn't get on the plane. He makes a, no. you know, cross-country <laughs> trek to Los Angeles. You know, that that you care. You've really taken some time to think about, you know, he's he's been on the road for multiple days thinking about his friend who died. And, you know, we don't get that scene, of course, this is a movie that's played for laughs, but this is a guy who really cared about his friend. He doesn't want this to be a case that just gets like thrown away and nobody cares that his friend died. You know, it, he needs closure and he needs to find the people who did it. There's multiple times in the movie where Taggart and Axel, they're foes in the beginning of this. They're, they're, they're meant to tail him, you know, in the beginning of the movie and he gives them the slip. He orders them some food, puts a banana in tailpipe. They get kind of ridiculed for it. (laughs) And, you know, when he meets up with them again, you know, he, he lets him know, like, I wasn't making a joke about the food. Like, you guys are on a stakeout. I know how it is. You know, that was from the heart from one cop to another. And he, you know, and even at the end, you know, when he's giving him the the, the, the robes from the hotel and he's like, you know, I really love you guys. Yeah. You know, I really. It's not sarcastic. You do feel like there's this genuine yeah. love and respect that he has for his peers. And I'd even go further back with that real quick to the first interaction that Axel and Taggart have together when Taggart punches him in the stomach. And when that scene ends and Axel's, you know, like where I come from, other cops don't press charges against other cops. And when he exits that scene, he says, you hit real hard or something like that to Taggart. And Taggart's like, man, he just like gave me a compliment after I just punched him. It's something that you're just not expecting. To me, this movie is a little bit more than just like a a comedy or an action comedy. You know, I think that there's a lot of heart here. That's what I appreciate about it. When we get into the next discussion, I I feel like that heart was kind of deflated a little bit as the sequels progressed. But this one has all the heart. And with the only female character in this film, Axel's friend Jenny, who he goes to visit, who he thinks can make the connection with uh, their mutual friend that was murdered um, that can shed some light on the situation. That aspect of their friendship, too, the way that they interact with each other, man, you can tell that they go back. Eddie Murphy does his signature laugh in one scene, and Jenny makes fun of him. Like, she mimics it back to him, and then that makes him laugh. And there are just so many moments that they have that you understand that, man, these guys go way far back, maybe even further back than Axel and and their friend that was murdered. And I have to point this out, that this is one of the only times I've really been struggling to think of another movie where there's been a female character that there hasn't been a love interest. 
that she is there seriously is just like his longtime friend and she's not a throwaway character. It's pretty cool for a very like male driven film to have um, a female character that is in it, like in, in the entire movie until the very friggin' end. And sure, she's taken hostage at one point, but it's not like a damsel in distress situation. It's actually just more of like a plot motivator that just needed to happen um, in order for the action to keep going. But the friendship aspects really are the driving force behind this film. It's a good point, too, about the love interest, because, uh, yeah, so many action movies have that 20 minute section where they linger on the love interest. And (laughs) I I do believe in the, the Stallone script that the Jenny character eventually did become like a love interest. I think it's great that they shy away from that and and focus more on the friendships that he builds with, with the new characters instead of um, kind of getting wrapped up in, in like a love story that we've seen time and time again, that generally isn't get in action movies, isn't given the time that it needs anyway. So it always Mm -hmm. generally feels like kind of rushed or like shoehorned in. Yeah. I'm curious as to the reason behind why she went from a love interest to like a best friend from way back. I kind of don't even want to know the reason why, but I'm really happy that it happened because I I think that she is a much stronger character as his longtime friend. The way that they treat each other is, I mean, it's just, it's great actually just to see that. And it's very... It's crazy to say a movie in 84 is refreshing for the male-female dynamic. It keeps it more true to Axel's intentions because if he if he if he was like I'm going all the way to find out who these people were that killed my friend and then he starts getting sidetracked with a love interest, you know, and like starts building, you know, he's like sleeps with a woman and starts doing all this stuff. It's like, wait, my focus is on finding out what happened to my friend. You know, you wouldn't think about other stuff, you know, and I think it stays true to his character and it, it, it's better for the movie. Yeah, totally agree. Well, let's stop there. We'll go to another clip. When we get back, we'll talk about the cast and characters, Martin Brest's career, a lot of the hot hits on the soundtrack, (laughs) as well as the Beverly Hills Cop franchise. Sounds good. Yes, oh, I'm having a great time. Can I have a scotch and soda? And the brothers, they, what you want? Like uh, light beers for the fellas. Two club sodas. <laughs> You'll crack me up, man, with this on duty shit. Billy, Billy, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed if your dick gets hard. But your dick is supposed to get hard, see? That's the whole object of this. Taggart's dick is hard, but he won't let you know because he's the boss. The boss' dick got to stay limp, right? Yeah, I ain't on duty, so my dick can be hard. Hey, Taggart, look. Check that out. I found out at Maitland's warehouse. Billy! Bill, here, give her this. Really, no, stuff that inside a little thing and she go nuts. Excuse me. Billy. So what do you think? Coffee ground. Yeah. So? You guys don't know nothing about nothing, do you? You just got your badges and your guns and you're on the job, right? Make sure we get the right drinks, because if I drink club soda, I'll throw up. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Like we said before, one of the main things that makes this movie so lovable is this cast of characters. You know, we've talked a lot about Eddie Murphy on this podcast before, and he's obviously the main driving force that that makes this movie work. But, you know, in a lot of comedies, you know, you need other actors that are 
that you can bounce off of, especially other comedic actors. And the Rosewood Taggart combo in this movie is <laughs> probably my the, my second favorite thing about Beverly Hills Cop outside of Eddie Murphy. Judge Reinhold and John Aston take a formula that's been done many times where you have sort of this straight, easygoing guy, and then you have like the uptight, kind of by the book guy, you know, the more gruff cop. And they're partnered up. Taggart, uh, John Aston characters, you know, older, been on the force, a little more out of shape. Judge Reinhold's the Rosewood, you know, a more uh, happier disposition, healthier, kind of uh, forward thinking. And the scenes that they have together where they're on the stakeouts are, I think, as equally as funny as a lot of the stuff that Eddie Murphy's doing. A lot of that stuff they came up with themselves, you know, they were going for like a Laurel and Hardy type comedy routine, like playing off of each other, situational type comedy. A lot of times, you know, movies, as soon as they leave the the lead comedic actor, that's where you have some dead spots in the movie. Yeah. And there's multiple yeah. times where, you know, we need to leave Eddie Murphy's character and show other sections of, of the plot and other characters. And the times that we leave Eddie Murphy where we're on Judge Reinhold and John Aston, there's not a dull moment. Once... Eddie Murphy's character, like Axel, teams up with these guys and they're all working together to solve this case, I think is when the movie really kicks off. It kicks into high gear. Again, I, you know, I stand by this. I think that the Taggart, Rosewood, Axel Foley trifecta are the reasons why I tune into Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, without a doubt. It's the reason why I go back to that movie numerous times. You know, we'll get to the the sequels in a bit here, but Judge Reinhold, John Aston both have been in tons of movies but I think these two characters that they play are, are amongst my favorite of their careers. And I'm really happy that they, you know, revisit these characters again. Judge Reinhold really uh, has a ability to put on that sort of uh, good guy charm without seeming like a D-bag. You know, he he has this boyish, like, innocence to him. But then when he gets serious... It's kind of funny, you know, like you, he gets aggressive and serious. And I think it's played for laughs, but he just does it so well. And John Aston, I think, is just, uh, has had a, you know, a good history of playing like this sort of like heavy characters, like the the tougher, gruffer guy who warms up a little bit. You know, he, he has a softness to him like later on, like, but your instinct is to not like him immediately, but then he grows on you. Yeah, John Aston's got to be happy with his performance and role in this movie because while he is playing the heavy and the grump ass, you know, partner, he he does soften, but he remains kind of, you know, the strong dude, but even at the end, he and Rosewood have seen the you know, kind of light that Axel Foley has shown them to maybe going by the book isn't you don't have to do that all the time. And him paired with Judge Reinhold, who two years before had just done Fast Times at Ridgemont High playing a high schooler. And now we completely believe him as a police officer. Judge, I have such a soft spot for him. One of the reasons that I picked a movie of his for my pick of the week, uh, I think that he just delivers such a solid performance in here. And it was actually Amy Heckerling from Fast Times who recommended him for this role too. Um, Just their dynamic together is so perfect. Also, when you are squared off against Eddie Murphy as, you know, the lead in this role to be able to hold up the other end of the film 
that's no small feat. So together them pulling off their comedy duo of this kind of uh, old married couple sort of thing that they're doing as partners really does work. And speaking of police officer roles, I have to just throw this out there right now. Gil Hill, who plays Inspector Todd, who is Axel's boss. This is crazy to me. I did not know this before watching it, that he was actually a real life Detroit cop. He was the head of homicide. And it was Martin Brest meeting him after doing, you know, some research and being in Detroit that he had decided to cast him just because of his look and the vibe that he gave off. He just thought that he would be perfect for this role. And when he read for it initially, wasn't the best. Um, but Martin Brest just really believed in him. And Gil Hill said, I know that you put your trust in me and you think I can do this and I'm not going to let you down. That Gil Hill made it through one, two, and three. I think it's just fabulous. I, I love what he brings to this role. He did say that he played this way harder than he ever actually was in real life as a cop. Yeah, when I read that uh, he wasn't an actor, just uh, that <laughs> yeah. he was in, in actuality a police officer, it made way more sense to me because he's not a particularly strong actor, but he does feel genuine to the role, and he has a good look. Seems like somebody who'd be doing this job, and he does, and he did. Yeah, he pulled it off completely. Um, let's see, Ronnie Cox as another police officer. Let's. Uh, this is our fourth movie? Yeah. That has featured Ronnie Cox. Deliverance, Total Recall, RoboCop. Ronnie Cox has got some range. Plays sort of the father figure, lieutenant character here. Stern, but uh, fair. It's very true. Gil Hill also does throw in on that father dynamic, too. I guess we're just talking about two of the the two dudes that are head of departments that are, are playing this father figure to the police officers. But Ronnie Cox, man, no matter what, that guy is a pro. Just no matter what, he's never phoning in a performance. He played so well off of Eddie Murphy and said that he enjoyed working with an actor who was really good with with improv and could always trust that Eddie was going to return to the point when he knew that he needed to enter a scene could always trust that with a scene partner. And that can't always happen when you're doing a movie with somebody who is the, you know, face and marquee name. And Ronnie Cox, I mean, guy's been in like a million movies, always, you know, supporting roles, but just wild to think in 1987, Ronnie Cox, uh, plays such a villainous character as like Dick Jones and RoboCop, you know, while, uh, you know, that same year, uh, carrying on, uh, as the lieutenant in Beverly Hills Cop Part Two, I I love him as a villain, but I also I love him as as the the nice guy. And uh, speaking of villains, get into the bad guys here a little bit. Um, <laughs> every movie like this needs like some convincing bad guys, and they're really not short on bad guys in Beverly Hills Cop. Really uh, slimy, convincing performance by Stephen Burkhoff, who plays Victor Maitland. What a name. Yeah. What a name for a bad guy. A big time art dealer, but uh, also dabbles in the cocaine drug trade. <laughs> you know, why not? Yeah. Yeah, of course. He was a bad guy in a, in Octopussy, a James Bond movie. And I think that that guarantees you a shoe in as a bad guy in any movie from there on out. He just has a look and a voice that, that just screams bad guy. His high art fashion and like, 
tan skin and white hair. Like, you know that that guy's up to no good. Of course he's smuggling in cocaine. Of course that guy is. And backed by him is Jonathan Banks, who I can't think of a movie where he doesn't play a bad guy. I'm really trying hard, but... Jonathan Banks is always solid as the um, asshole that's backing the villain. Um, And he does it with a lot of gusto in this one, too, even though he literally gets some cake on his face in a scene. The thing that's the most trippy about Jonathan Banks is if you've seen Breaking Bad recently or were a fan of Breaking Bad, but then you haven't seen Beverly Hills Cop in a really, really long time, you know him as Mike, the serious, lovable bad guy in Breaking Bad, and you're not, you you know, you're used to seeing him without hair and like a whole, like an older, bald, villainous character, and then, you know, seeing him younger with hair, um, you're like, what do I know this guy from? And you're like, oh my God, it's Mike <laughs> from Breaking Bad, you know, just a, a long line of, of great villains. And to round out to the uh, kind of supporting characters, the friends, we've got Lisa Eilbacher, who plays Jenny, longtime friend of Axel. Man, she's great in this. I, I already talked about her a little bit earlier in discussion one, but um, just does such a great job of solidifying the fact that these guys are friends. And I think that a performance like this, especially when you're the only woman in the cast, could be phoned in and almost forgotten, but it is not in this case. And honestly, when I went back and rewatched this, strangely to me, I was like, oh yeah, her, she's in Leviathan. Why do I remember her from Leviathan more than I do Beverly Hills Cop? But I did. Anyway, solid performance in this film. I love her in it. And uh, Lisa Albacher, who uh, just a year before Beverly Hills Cop played in probably one of the stranger Charles Bronson movies that come out of the 80s, uh, 10 to Midnight, definitely worth watching if you haven't seen it. Uh, kind of a really wild serial killer movie. I don't know, it was like equally dark and disturbing as it is goofy. You know, I haven't seen that, but I read the description for it, just cursory and like looking stuff up. kind of want to see that just by the description. You, you'll <laughs> dig it. <laughs> of course I would. Yeah. I knew that she's from Officer and a Gentleman, too. Um, but was not the one that, that stuck out to me. I need to check out 10 to Midnight now. I'll loan it to you. Oh, you got it. Of course you have it. Thank you. Well, then we have the uh, character who kicks off the whole movie, and that's uh, James Russo's Mikey Tandino. Some great names in this movie. Axel Foley, Victor Maitland, Mikey Tandino. <laughs> and I'm glad that they went with this guy just because he has such a familiarity to his face he's friendly but you know that he has a past and he's kind of troubled but that he is lovable and axel is always going to hold this guy in in high esteem and he's always going to mean a lot to him and we need to care about him and we don't know much about him upon meeting him but he has a friendly face and I think it was important to have an actor that you didn't immediately recognize. I think he was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High uh, with Judge Reinhold. But the fact that he doesn't immediately jump out and you go, oh, yeah, he's from this movie. I think that that's important for his role in Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's finally time to talk about 
the one standout uh, player who, uh, I mean, Bronson Pinchot. Come on. Ser- Serge. Like, what is he, French? Israeli? I don't know. I don't know who he is, where he hails from. And I love that I have no idea. And I think that was the the main point he was trying to bring to the character is like this sort <laughs> yeah. of like you can't place where he's from or what the accent is. It's yeah. like a, a culmination of a lot of things. But he really uh, kind of steals every scene that he's in. This movie was sort of like a launching pad to like this fantastic television career. One year later was cast in Perfect Strangers as the Balky character. And I mean, that move, that TV series ran for like eight seasons or something. It was a big hit show. My favorite uh, performance of his of all time, though, is uh, in a movie that we did. One of my favorites, True Romance, the Elliot Blitzer character. I really uh, like his uh, back and forth with, with Eddie Murphy in this movie. And there were a lot of people that auditioned for that part, but it was Bronson Pinchot's variation on this character, which just enabled this whole reimagining of what Serge could be. And I feel like I have to point it out a little bit that this guy isn't, um, he could be easily played for a gay joke. And to me, he's not. And I, I don't know if that's originally what the intention was, but I love that it's almost like we don't even think, like, is this guy gay? It doesn't even matter because we're too distracted by the performance, his accent, how he's interacting with Axel, that if there is a gay joke in there, it's not even registering. And I think that that was kind of intentional because, you know, something like that is an easy joke. We're not laughing at Serge. We are laughing at his interaction with Axel, which I have to say, upon learning that their initial meeting scene was 36 takes, I think, that Martin Bress said that he did just 36 just different improv scenes where the dialogue was different, the angles, the shots, everything was different, which made it such a nightmare for editing. And initially, the studio saw this raw footage and was like, this isn't going to cut together well, we got to cut this, we got to reshoot it. But editor Billy Weber was able to pull it together, make it into a hilarious scene that we uh, see in the movie. And, you know, a lot of the success of this movie is definitely on the shoulders of the cast and and Eddie Murphy himself. But manning the ship behind everything is director Martin Brest, who has had an interesting career. I mean, he's only done six movies. He bookends his career by writing his first movie and his last movie, which is uh, Going in Style and his last movie, Geely. But Going in Style was a modest hit. He gets hired on to direct War Games, which was like a huge budgeted, high concept movie. He unfortunately gets fired from that movie about two weeks before they start shooting. And that's a worst case scenario for a director. But then immediately turns around within a year is directing the biggest hit of 1984. I can't even imagine the pressure of coming off of a gargantuan hit like Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, you know, Eddie Murphy took a lot of the pressure probably off of his hands, but you're probably thinking that Martin Brest was handed like every script in Hollywood, like if it had action or comedy in it, they're like, (laughs) that's his thing. And 
four, yeah. four years goes by. He doesn't make a movie for four years, which is kind of wild. I mean, Hollywood, that's like mm-hmm. 20 years, you know. You almost wonder if he's like, what What can you do? You know, how do you follow up such a big hit? Are there doubts to think like, was this movie successful of anything I did? Or was it, you know, was it all like Eddie Murphy and like the jokes and everything? But he follows up Beverly Hills Cop with Midnight Run, which I think is you know, not as funny as Beverly Hills Cop, but it has the same tone and and vibe of really good humor. We've got really great character friendship movie, and the action is even more hard hitting and realistic than it was in Beverly Hills Cop. And you know, you have two what I think are two of amongst the best action comedies of the '80s on your resume. That's pretty fantastic. Midnight Run is a is a modest hit. And also to Midnight Run, it's kind of revitalized De Niro's career. Martin Brest did the same thing for Al Pacino with Scent of a Woman, which say what you want about that movie, you know, I mean, Al Pacino being Al Pacino, but it was a huge hit. I mean, a, another monster hit for Martin Brest. He follows that up with Meet Joe Black. It was a sleeper hit, you know, a big vehicle for Brad Pitt. After Meet Joe Black, he doesn't do a movie for many, many years. Like five years, yeah. And then he writes and directs Geely, which at the time, I mean, you've got Jennifer Lopez and and Ben Affleck who are dating. Not to get into like, you know, the sort of Hollywood rumor mill, but this these are facts. They're they're in a relationship. You know, it seems like this movie's gonna be this huge hit because people love them both. They're international superstars. They're in a movie together. It's gonna be this whole big thing. And the movie is just a total disaster. Like, people hate the movie. Critics hate the movie. No one goes to see the movie. Martin Brest's friends don't like the movie. He just kind of becomes a marked... He becomes a marked man in Hollywood. I mean, he's... You know, people are saying, this is like the worst movie ever made. It was a huge financial disaster for the studio. He took it really, really hard. I mean, he backed away. He just sort of like hung his head down. You know, and then this is the the first not hit of his career. And uh, he just walked away from Hollywood. He hasn't directed a movie since... kind of crazy you know I mean that's not something you hear of too often I don't know I always think of Martin Brest as this like really fascinating and sort of depressing Hollywood tale of like someone who really went to the heights of like a director in Hollywood to like the lowest lows like he's experienced both sides of it would love to hear the stories that he has to tell I still think that he can rest easy knowing that he's made two really when you think about the action comedy genre I mean two of of of, you know, probably in the top 10 easily. And so many people had nothing but praises to sing for him on Beverly Hills Cup. He was always enthusiastic and easy to work with. He was the guy that clarified what was going on with the plot and made it easier for everyone to make the picture work and let the actors feel free in order to communicate everything that needed to happen on screen. And I got the idea that he, I mean, it was really just a blessing to work with him. Really haven't, and just in research, really never heard any bad stories or anything like that about him. I mean, I am very curious as to what happened with Gili. I mean, he wrote it, and the studio had a lot of involvement towards the end of changing a lot of things that happened. I mean, honestly, I would, I would love to talk to him <laughs> about it. Because um, there are some fundamental things about the story of that movie that are problematic that I would love to talk to him about. And that's the other thing, too, with Geely, which is fascinating because it is, I mean, he wrote 
produced and directed it. So it's like it was his baby. It's not one of those things where it's like, oh, well, over the years, like the movie's like reevaluated. It's 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 pretty bad. Martin Brest has had a very roller coaster ride of a career as a Hollywood director. Getting back to Beverly Hills Cop, one thing that I wanted to mention in discussion one that I didn't was that though a lot of things in Beverly Hills Cop kind of feel 80s, the movie itself feels pretty modern. But the one thing that makes it feel very 80s is the soundtrack, which is great. Movies just don't do that anymore. Like It's very rare that a movie comes out with like wall-to-wall songs that are going to be released as singles and like be on the radio. But in the 80s, that, that was just something that, that happened. They have, you know, and they had theme songs, like a theme song, instrumental theme song would be like played on the radio. You know, it was like even those became hits and people bought the singles. And Beverly Hills Cop was a huge smash success. The theme music to Axel Foley, uh, the song titled Axel F by Harold Faltermeyer is immediately identifiable you just hear a a couple little notes and you're like oh it's the beverly hills cop theme constantly stuck in my head i mean for 25 30 years i was um singing or humming i don't know i I was doing the melody of the song today at work and um my coworker said oh i learned how to play that on piano when i was a kid like you immediately know what it is and it's even shown up on like 80s spotify playlists and it is just a solid instrumental song. There are no words to it, but it is so catchy and so perfect for it. And Harold Faltermeyer, like, he's no stranger to this uh, synth funk thing that was happening during that early early to mid-80s. He's also responsible for the Fletch theme. Um, and the Top Gun. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Top Gun, too. And I think he did not only the Fletch theme song, but also I think he wrote the single from that bit by bit. I can't, not positive, but I'm pretty sure that he wrote that too. Um, Cuffs, Running Man, gosh. I mean, the dude knew what he was doing in the 80s. Yeah, and he he co-wrote The Heat Is On. Heat Is On. It was like number two on the on the billboard like hot 100 charts like huge smash song very successful vocals performed by glenn fry of the eagles but harold faltermeyer brought the song in um and uh you know had already done all the instrumentation like they were looking for somebody like a you know some like more of like a rock vocal then you you mix in pointer sisters um neutron dance which wasn't even a hit until it, it was on an album, but it wasn't a hit until it came out in Beverly Hills. And uh, Nasty Girl by Vanity. So good. The story behind that, that that's, that's the song that's playing over the scene when um, Taggart and Rosewood and, and Axel are at a strip club. And um, it's being performed while, while a stripper's dancing. And as the story goes, the woman who was dancing was uh, responsible for choosing that song because she had a routine to it. I mean, could you get any more perfect? And a uh, early uh, piece by Danny Elfman, you know, prior to his uh, becoming one of the top composers in Hollywood. We've got Patti LaBelle. Coming in with two songs, New Attitude and Stirred Up. Don't Get Stopped in Beverly Hills by Shalimar. The hits just keep coming. I 
I think out of all the movies we've done, this is maybe the the one soundtrack where it's more than three songs. Yeah, it's loaded. And next time you go back and watch Beverly Hills Cop and you listen for the Axel F theme, note where it comes up in the movie because it's always when Axel is up to some mischief. When he's doing something that he's, you know, investigating something or putting a banana in a tailpipe, he's up to no good. The songs really throughout the movie are so intentionally placed and really help become a driving force for the film. I mean, as soon as the movie opens with The Heat Is On, like, you're ready. You're ready for action. You don't know what's coming at you, but you're ready for it. I don't know what could top it in 84. And uh, what was a bigger hit than the soundtrack? Good gracious, the the box office. Good Lord, yes. It is like, think about how movies are now. Everything is so front-loaded. A movie hits, and granted, there's like double the amount of theaters there are, so ticket sales are just like insane. A movie never had a, you know, made $100,000 over the weekend, like back in the 80s. But movies also don't have longevity anymore. You know, they open and within three weeks they're done. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like a movie now comes out sometimes like as little as like three to five months, it's already available. Well, hell, things are totally different now. Pandemic times, like we're having movies come out. That's a whole other discussion. But Beverly Hills Cop opens number one at the box office, okay? 13 weeks, it stays at number one at the box office. 13 weeks, it's insane. Then on its 14th week, it gets knocked out of the number one box office by Tootsie. But then the very next weekend, its 15th weekend release, it goes back to number one. International sensation. Like Just to put it in perspective, Beverly Hills Cop was, for 19 years until The Matrix hit, was the highest grossing R-rated movie. And I mean, that's up there with like The Exorcist and The Godfather. 19 years. That's crazy. And the highest grossing comedy for, I think it was like around about 25 years until The Hangover. So these are all giant movies that happened. But think about all of the movies that transpired over the, the, the previous 20 years. There were a hell of a lot of blockbusters that happened between when Beverly Hills Cop came out to when that record was broken. It's just nuts to think about and how could a movie like this not spawn sequels yeah in the 80s sequels became like a pretty big thing you know by the by the end of the 80s it was almost natural to if a movie was a success whether people even wanted it or not they were going to make a sequel you know and they'd, they'd make three or four of them but with beverly hills cop i think that there was a sense of we really want to see this character in another adventure and what's great about a setup like this is that you have, you know, a whole nother caper. There could be a whole nother case to solve. But you do have to also get Axel back to Beverly Hills. For Beverly Hills Cop 2, it's, a, it's an interesting transition because we have a director like Tony Scott who's like so the complete opposite of Martin Brest. Had a huge hit with Top Gun for years, you know, after Beverly Hills Cop. You know, it's been known as like a very visual a very action-oriented director who is definitely more worried about the visual aspect and the you know the visual aspect of the movie over like the story and and drive and you know he's more worried about the energy that's coming off the screen and Beverly Hills Cop Two just the opening the robbery scene probably has more style and like 
feels like a director behind the movie in that first opening scene than all of the original Beverly Hills Cop. And I'm not, I'm not, not I'm not disparaging Beverly Hills Cop, but I'm just saying you're like, whoa, this is a different movie because Beverly Hills Cop was totally different feel. You know, it's it's not the prettiest looking movie, but to- again, totally different feel for Beverly Hills Cop 2. Beverly Hills Cop 2 is just like amped up. And I think it does what a sequel is meant to do. It gives you a little bit more of, of what you you liked about the first one, you know, makes things bigger, more exciting, amps up the, the characters. We see Axel trying to solve another case. He's hooking up with Taggart and Billy Rosewood again because uh, the Ronnie Cox character gets shot. And, you know, so they're on the case. Beverly Hills Cop 2, I think, was a movie that people really wanted. I mean, people were ready for it. Eddie Murphy had done The Golden Child, which wasn't that big of a hit. You know, people were ready to see him and what they loved. And that was the Axel Foley character. And that movie really delivered. It wasn't as big of a hit as the original Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, how could it be? But it was still a huge success. But after Beverly Hills Cop 2, there was a pretty long period where Eddie Murphy started drifting into different roles. He was, you know, he had a hit with Coming to America, but he was definitely doing more serious roles. He was doing comedy still, but more, I guess, mature comedy, kind of shying away from like the goofiness and some of the voices that, you know, he did in other movies and that's what audiences really loved and the movies where he shied away from that weren't as successful and i think you know 1994 the the early 90s was he was trying a bunch of different things and the idea of doing a a Beverly Hills cop movie was not in the cards for Eddie Murphy. I think in an interview, he said something like, if you see me in Beverly Hills cop three, you know, it's because they offered me like in an ungodly amount of money. And sure enough, (laughs) that was the case. They offered him like really so much money. And it was like nearly impossible to turn down. It was like, I can retire on Beverly Hills cop three money. He took the role. Yeah. He's reteamed with John Landis who, you know, worked with Eddie Murphy in two hits trading places and, coming to America, but they were at a complete opposite. John Landis thought, hey, this script sucks, but we've got a we've got Eddie Murphy doing a character that people all love and he's gonna be funny. So he can work the same magic he did in other movies. He can improvise. We can take a script that's not very good and do some Axel Foley, Eddie Murphy magic. But immediately John Landis realized that Eddie Murphy was not wanting to do that. He didn't want to be funny. He didn't want to goof around because he thought that the Axel Foley character is too old to be doing some of the goofy stuff that he did in the other movies. Mm, and yeah, I understand that. I can respect that. But might have been something that that conversation would have been good to have before they started shooting the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. John Landis just describes yeah. uh, shooting Beverly Hills Cop 3 as like a really weird experience. And apparently uh, Eddie Murphy was also like just kind of down in the dumps and wasn't feeling it, you know, wasn't uh, giving it his all. And I think it really shows on screen, you know, you you have kind of a deflated Axel Foley. I think that Beverly Hills Cop 3, I, I hated it when it came out, but, you know, I, I've wa- I watched it. I'll, I'll say this. I watched half of it. And then you told me, you know, I, you know, you, you, you said, you know, I, I don't mind. it. And so I was like, man, all right, I'm going to finish this dang thing. <laughs> Um, and I, I, about two days later after you said that I, I watched, I finished the movie. It, it's a serviceable sequel for a part three, but I do think that what made the other Beverly Hills Cop movies special 
was the the friendships that were made and the and the characters bounce, bouncing off of each other. Yes. And everything yeah. in Beverly Hills Cop Three felt kind of forced. You know, the Surge character felt forced in there. Billy Rosewood just we didn't we we didn't have Taggart. You know, John Ashton couldn't scheduling. He couldn't get in on the movie. And you really miss Taggart and Beverly Hills Cop 3. We do have Hector Elizondo, who's always awesome in every movie. And I felt like he was underused. It's like you've got a comedic actor who has some great chemistry. And they just, it was almost like they refused to pair him up with Eddie Murphy. Like they have scenes where they're talking on the phone, but very little scenes where they're together. And it's a sequel that like, I, I don't know that it's one that I'd watch again. I'm glad that I watched it one final time before I closed the book on, uh, on, on watching that movie ever again. But <laughs> Retired. <laughs> now you come in and you just say the opposite of what I just said. You're, you're here's, this is your, this is your time to defend Beverly Hills Cop 3. No. No, 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 no. You know, I hear completely what you're saying. Gil Hill also came back for this one, too. That says something. Not for very long, but he is in it. You know, I think compared to the first one and the second one, it's a puff piece. But out of all of the third installments of franchises that I've seen... Um, I've seen worse. So I, I don't know. I mean, if you're a completist, you got to watch it. But I, I don't necessarily think that it's necessary to the story of Beverly Hills Cop. I think if you like Eddie Murphy and Axel Foley, that's the thing is like Eddie Murphy can make anything good. And even though his heart wasn't in it, and I do agree with you, Justin, that, you know, you see that a little bit, especially when you compare it to the movies before you see it. But I don't think that it is completely, you know, a throwaway movie at all. I enjoy just on a superficial level. I enjoy the amusement park aspect that it takes place in an amusement park. The the plot. I know we spent some time talking about the plot being, you know, thin in the original Beverly Hills Cop. But I mean, it can get thinner. That's what I'll say. I don't even know what was going on by the end of the Hills Cup 3. <laughs> it's definitely the weakest of the bunch, but I, I don't hate it, you know, and, and there are, are some movies that I cannot revisit or that I've tried to revisit. I'm just like, I can't do it again. And we'll, we'll put the kibosh on it, but you know, you say, I'm glad I had that final watch of Beverly Hills Cop 3 if this is going to be on TBS or something, I'm not going to turn it off because it is solidly entertaining. There's like a whole scene where he's jumping from uh, like different pods on a on a Ferris wheel. That was pretty that was full of some tension there. I was honestly a little nervous. Like, how is this going to get pulled off? And I think I just forgotten ever seeing Beverly Hills Cop three. Because uh, all of this was new to me. So in in watching it with really fresh eyes, not remembering any bit of it, I didn't mind it. I've seen worse part threes in franchises. Yeah, I agree with that. I've definitely seen some worse part threes. Um, if you are a completist, though, and you, you want to do all three of these, the trilogy, all at once... All three are on HBO Max right now. And it is interesting to kind of sit down and yeah. watch them all over one weekend because you just, there's such a difference between each one, you know, that, that has their own, it has yeah. its own little vibe. Well, let's, uh, let's stop there. We'll come back with some final thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop. Um, but let's get into our picks of the week. 
uh, Lindsay, you went with Ruthless People with Judge Reinhold. What can you tell me about that movie? That I love Judge Reinhold. He's like a sweet little dreamy baby boy. And whenever there's a revisit from childhood and you can only remember a few things about it, there's totally a high risk of ruining what you once thought was fantastic. But that is not at all the case with Ruthless People. All I remembered were the film stars. That being Bette Midler was a supremely terrible person. Judge Reinhold and Helen Slater were adorable and not really remembering Danny DeVito in the best light. All of those memories were accurate, but man, is this movie sublimely and wonderfully twisted. For a movie put out by Disney, I'm kind of surprised at how risque it appears, but there is a lesson to be learned, and the plot itself is massively over the top. The title of the movie doesn't really mess around. Ruthless People opens on Danny DeVito playing Sam Stone, the heavy, explaining to his perceived mistress how he wants his wife dead and he's planning on murdering her later that day. He just can't take her anymore. He wants her money. He feels like he deserves it after all these years of putting up with her brattiness. And his wife, Barbara Stone, played by Bette Midler, is certainly a cantankerous, loud, abrasive, rude, demanding. I mean, she's she's terrible. And it's a solid setup for the audience to question which one of these people is the worst in the relationship. The movie does start out as somewhat formulaic. We've all seen the husband who wants the wife dead in comedies, thrillers, hell, pretty much every episode of Dateline. But the twists in this story just keep unfolding. I'm not ruining anything here by telling you that when Sam returns home to follow through with his murderous plot, he finds that Barbara has been kidnapped. And seemingly, this is the most fortunate turn of events Sam could have ever asked for. The kidnappers holding Barbara, played by Beverly Hills cop himself, Judge Reinhold, and the legend of Billie Jean's own Helen Slater. Can you get a more adorably innocent 80s couple? And also one who doesn't seem like your typical kidnappers at all? As it turns out, these two were screwed over by Sam Stone stealing an idea from them, then going on to make millions for himself and giving them zero credit. So of course, the natural conclusion here is to kidnap Sam's wife and regain all the money they think they deserve. It's very difficult to not just tell you everything that happens, but to say you might not expect all the twists and turns in this movie is quite an understatement. And fortunately, it's not exhausting. And since this is an over-the-top, ridiculous comedy, with every corner you turn, maybe you can figure out how the story is going to end, but the journey there is going to keep you guessing. Although there's a ton of darkness woven into this film, the dark humor is often offset by the heart of the film, which eventually emerges specifically through Brian Holden Slater's relationship with Midler. The desperation of two good-hearted people who chose to do something totally stupid like kidnap someone because they were wronged, then face the ultimate doom only to be saved ironically by DeVito's own selfishness and absence of humanity, while also awakening Midler's character in a whole new way that she was never expecting. By the end of this film, you could leave it thinking that if you wait long enough, some way in which you were wronged in your life is going to eventually come around and karmically repay you tenfold. The film's writer, Dale Launer, also wrote such films as My Cousin Vinny, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Blind Date, so he's obviously very skilled at creating unbelievable situations transpiring in a very real-world way. This is also the first movie I've come across in recent history, which has three directors, brothers Jerry and David Zucker and Jim Abrams, who have all been the brains behind many memorable comedies from Airplane to the scary movies and just so many more. 
I read that while one would be instructing actors and going over scenes, the other two would be looking at playbacks and getting set for the next shots. I guess when you've got a great partnership going, you just keep rolling with it. But it is amazing to me to think that three men were able to make so many legendary comedies together. Another aspect which immediately stuck out to me was the film's theme song named for the movie, and I had not remembered it at all, but knew immediately upon a re-listen that it's totally Mick Jagger, and a Mick Jagger song playing over a whacked-out animated opening to the film. On top of that, you've got legendary composer Michel Colombier, who we've brought up in past episodes, plus just a who's who on this 1986 soundtrack. Ruthless People is vulgar, hilarious, and complicated, but an absolute delight when you're looking for a distraction. And like every Disney movie, it ends up with the best resolution possible. It is really awesome to see how the story wraps up, and if you've stayed with the film the entire time, it seems pretty impossible to not feel satisfied. What uh, always surprises me about uh, Ruthless People is it's the Jim Abrams, David Zucker, more straightforward comedic movie. Um, that you're used to seeing, especially for them in the 80s. It's a little more reserved, but I, I really enjoy it. Um, it's it's definitely uh, falls into that dark humor category of like War of the Roses and that, that kind of style where I could see how it could turn people off pretty quickly, but I, I really do enjoy it. I find it to be a pretty funny and entertaining movie. It's the same over-the-top vibe, yeah, as as War of the Roses and, like, a little Death Becomes Her type of thing where it's, yeah. like, just out of reach of, of not being something that would happen in the real world, but you're like, I'm completely buying this plot. All right, Justin, your turn. Tell me about your pick. Well, speaking of over-the-top movies... Yes. <laughs> now, Cobra has got to be one of the most over-the-top action movies I've seen in a long time. It had probably been, I want to say like a decade since I've sat down and really watched this movie. And it was definitely more of an interesting watch this time around, knowing that the history of Stallone taking what he had worked on with Beverly Hills Cop and, and transferring it into this movie. And he definitely went ahead and was like, I'm not so much concerned with story either. I'm going to make a straight up action movie with this like really tough guy character. Stallone plays Mario Cabretti. He's the uh, lieutenant of an elite group of LAPD officers called the Zombie Squad. And it's really kind of like act now, ask questions later. Just from the very opening of the movie, we really see how outrageous the violence in this movie is going to be. Immediately following the scene, we kind of see Stallone. You know, he's the kind of guy who comes home, eats cold pizza while cleaning his gun. That's the first thing he does when he walks into his house. I'm going to start cleaning my handgun. <laughs> and kind of sets the tone. And though how we talked about with uh, there not being a love interest in Beverly Hills Cop, this movie does take a detour into a love interest. The main plot of the movie is there's this organization called the, the New World, and they're basically like a violent cult that wants to eradicate the weak and have only the strong survive type motto where they're going to take over the world. But uh, in the process of them uh, murdering more people, a motto played by Brigitte Nielsen witnesses this uh homicide and she becomes their main focus their main target they want to kill her this cult organization is led by the night slasher he's been dubbed by the local media and he's played with 
really great villainous flair by Brian Thompson, who uh, we've talked about before being in the opening of Terminator, and he's uh, played a villain in many television shows and other movies. And basically, we're all, this whole movie is leading to a showdown between the Night Slasher and Cobra. But before that, Cobra does get involved with the model. The movie kind of stops for a moment. They go off to the countryside and and have a little romantic moment that lasts about 10 or 15 minutes in the movie until the the New World gang shows up and it becomes a big showdown. I want to say, like, Stallone kills, like, 50 dudes in this movie. I mean, it's insane. (laughs) Like, the body count is very, very high. The action is very, very high. The dialogue is absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) Um, it's, it's a sight to be seen. I I definitely think this movie kind of falls into that category of like, it's so bad. It, it's really like good. It's kind of just an entertaining to me, I I would label it. And somehow all my pick of the weeks always end in this genre of (laughs) Saturday or Sunday afternoon movies. And I do think this is like the ultimate Sunday or Saturday afternoon movie, you know, pop this thing on about noon or one o'clock and just kick back and, and just watch the ludicrous action unfold. And I give it credit to Stallone. I mean, he has a knack for creating these very iconic, memorable characters, you know, John Rambo, Rocky, Cobra is definitely one where, you know, he's, he's got the leather on, he's got his hair slicked back. He's got, he's wearing mirrored sunglasses, whether he's in his apartment or he's out in the bright sunlight, he's always got a matchstick that he's chewing on. Some of these things that may be like uh, a little quirky or corny, but they keep his characters memorable and they and they stick it with you. And, and Cobra has gone on to become quite a cult classic, though at the time, even though it was ravaged by critics, uh, it was an international hit and again solidified Stallone as, as one of the uh, top contenders for um, action stars of the 80s. Remind me to show you a picture of my brother in the 80s and you'll be like, was that just like a mini... Sylvester Stallone in Cobra. Yeah. Because he looks so much like him. It's it's really weird. <laughs> I definitely want to see this photo. I mean, it's just what he looked like in the 80s. He just looked like a miniature version of, of Stallone. That's awesome. I do remember Cobra being a lot of fun, just a, a great thriller that uh, you can just zone out to and just get sucked into. It's, it's pretty fun. And gotta love me some Brian Thompson and Brigitte Nielsen. Also, who pops up in Beverly Hills Cop 2. Also co-stars with Stallone um, just one year before Cobra in Rocky IV. Yeah, yeah. She certainly made her mark in the 80s, too. And great, yeah, great actor, yeah. Well, those are picks of the week, Cobra and Ruthless People, both uh, worth checking out if you haven't seen them or if you need to revisit them. We definitely recommend it. But let's keep on trucking. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun.
Obviously, after choosing a Judge Reinhold movie as my pick for this episode, I have a special place in my heart for this guy. So since he and Billy were in Stripes together in 81, I had to see if there was some kind of documented connection. Remember now, Stripes was Reinhold's second film, but it was a massive movie for a 23-year-old. Initially, it was conceptualized as a Cheech and Chong movie, but after they backed out, Ivan Reitman came on board and asked Billy to do the picture. And this was fresh off their success with Meatballs. Reinhold landing a meteor role like this, especially when the trend for guys his age was more in the style of Animal House, well, it was kind of a big deal. And Reinhold has said that this was a pretty mind-blowing experience at the time. Stripes really transformed once it became a Bill Murray vehicle, despite the man not officially agreeing to do the film, even within two weeks of shooting. But since Reitman had become familiar with his behavior on Meatballs, you know, not showing up until the very last moment, he wasn't too surprised. Reitman also knew that Billy's friend Harold Ramis was set to be his counterpart in the picture, and Billy had said he'd only do the movie if Ramis was involved. It was pretty much a guarantee that Bill was going to show up. Co-starring in Stripes certainly made Reinhold a little nervous, being surrounded with such seasoned talent, especially when seeing how Billy and Harold would disappear to rework scenes that they were shooting that same day. Harold and Bill would go into their trailer and rewrite while we were blocking the camera for the next shot, Reinhold has said of the time. They would come out of the trailer with some just outlandish stuff. And that's how Bill protected himself and made this superb, enduring movie. Rounding out the comedy legends involved was the always funny, lovable, kind-hearted, and generous John Candy, who was a little closer to Reinhold's status in the film. Even though this was some scary pressure for Judge, he said that he received encouragement from Candy specifically, which helped ease his nervousness. Among many stories he's told of the experience, Reinhold has said that he and Candy would flirt with girls in town by saying they were working on a Bill Murray movie, because name-dropping would, you know, gain them some points with the attractive locals. But alas, because of their army-style shaved heads, barely anyone bought what sounded like was a whopper of a story. But, you know, you gotta go big, you gotta put it out there, especially when you're green and inexperienced like Judge was at the time. And despite feeling the pressure of this massive movie, Reinhold told the Hollywood Interview blog that Billy helped him become a little more assured of himself. I got a great lesson in audacity from Bill Murray in terms of putting myself out on a limb and seeing comedy as an act of audacity. That's what I saw in him every day. Reinhold certainly respected Billy from the get-go and quickly got a lesson about the man's personality. As the story goes, early on in Shooting Stripes, Judge went right up to him and said, Hi, Bill. My name's Judge, and I really enjoy your work. Seemingly out of nowhere with his reaction, Billy responds by squeezing Reinhold's cheeks with just one hand while saying, Does it bother you when I do that? There was a lot Reinhold learned on the set of Stripes, one lesson being that you could never predict what Bill was going to do next. You'll get the exact opposite if you're looking for an expected certain reaction. And it's a good thing that Bill and Reitman ended up having a long-lasting working relationship because, according to Reinhold, not even the director of the picture could totally control Billy. Just to think back on this time, what an amazing big break to have when you're a sweet 23-year-old actor. Those early lessons certainly helped Judge get a firm grasp on what the decade ahead would be for him. And he's got the guys from Stripes to thank for it. Yeah, I feel like this is uh, similar to the lesson Bill Murray taught Zach Galligan on uh, Nothing Lasts Forever. Yeah, I think he was a little, I think he was a little bit more gruff with Zach Galligan. But I, I, I think in the same way, you know, wanting to just like rough him up a little bit to yeah. be like, you got this kid, you know yeah. you do, but... You got to deal with with me for a second. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. As always, of course. 
I had a little uh, just tidbit final thought. Did you have any final thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop before we close out this episode? Uh, yeah, I have one. Learning that Martin Brest, he had a, a trade-off for a shot that he wanted to keep in the movie that the studio wanted to cut. The shot that he wanted to keep is between Jenny and the villain, Victor Maitland, where Maitland comes in and starts questioning Jenny on, you know, how do you know Axel Foley? Have you seen him lately? What's going on there? And trying to be coy about it in some way when he's just really trying to get information out of her. But it was important to the story. It's important because, you know, he takes Jenny kind of hostage later on in the movie. So it's important for the story for that to be kept in. But the studio thought it just wasn't needed let's cut it out but it's not even that long of a scene and i think it's necessary for the film too the trade-off was that the studio wanted the movie to end uh with a freeze frame of eddie murphy and it does and uh martin breast absolutely hated the freeze frame but it was what he had to do in order to keep that scene in that he thought was necessary i don't think the freeze frame's that terrible it does have a little bit of a cheese factor to it. I see what Martin Brest is saying, but man, if that's your trade-off, it could be worse. And uh, I like that they ended up using the freeze frame in all, at the end of all three uh, Beverly Hills Cop movies, too. Yeah, you might as well. What about you? What's your final thought, Justin? Um, when I can, I like to connect stuff to St. Louis. And the heat is on the you know main big hit from Beverly Hills Cop has a St. Louis connection in that one year after Beverly Hills Cop, uh, the, the Cardinals were in the playoffs and, and then went to the World Series to battle the Royals. And the Heat Is On sort of became a rally song for the Cardinals. Um, they even uh, went as far as remixed the song. So when it played on the radio, it would have announcements from Joe Buck, like <laughs> calling plays, you know, bit, you know, and they'd have like the crowd like cheering and stuff. And so The Heat Is On became a real St. Louis staple song. And even though the uh, Cardinals did end up losing the the World Series to the Kansas City Royals, um, which was, you know, a very intense battle because Kansas City is, uh, you know, also in Missouri. So they called it like the I-70 showdown. It was a very, uh, <laughs> you know, that being the highway that connects Kansas City and, and yeah. St. Louis. And so very, very intense uh, seven-game series. Even though the Cardinals lost, the heat is on. Really continued to be like a, a St. Louis Cardinals song. And, you know, they played it uh, in the stadium for, for years and years and years. And I can't help but think of the St. Louis Cardinals first before I think of Beverly Hills Cop when I hear that song. I really want to know if there's anyone else listening that feels that same way as you. And uh, who would have thought that I would be closing this episode out with with some sports history? (laughs) (laughs) You do love all your sport balls, I tell you. There's there's nothing that you love more than sports, Justin. Just a tiny bit of sarcasm there. A little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our episode on Beverly Hills Cop. Next uh, month, we're going to be doing a very, very special episode. We'll be celebrating Mr. Bill Murray's birthday by covering the movie Rushmore on the podcast. How did it take us this long to get to Rushmore? You know, it's kind of crazy. I, I, I think it's nuts that we haven't done as much as we like Wes Anderson, that that we haven't done yeah. a Wes Anderson movie 
and that we haven't done Rushmore, but mm-hmm. all that is, is going to happen next month. So stay tuned yes. for that. You can find out uh, lots of upcoming details about what we're up to on social media. If you haven't already, please do follow us on Facebook or Instagram. We have a YouTube channel. Um, please rate and review if you can. We absolutely appreciate it. You can also follow us on Twitter there. If you'd like to listen to old episodes, they are all archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. There we also have a merchandise store. We have all kinds of things that are related to our podcast, as well as movie posters, movie memorabilia, pretty much anything that we can dig up and make a couple bucks on to help us uh, (laughs) use the money to help promote, pay for ads, all the things that we need to pay for to keep the podcast up and running and sounding professional. So um, thank you for people who've purchased stuff in the past. Uh, Every penny counts. Um, It does take a little bit of money to keep this thing running, and we appreciate the support. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank mm-hmm. you.